How well do we comprehend the spiritual danger of idolatry? I wonder how well we comprehend it. Think about this. Does the suffering of the Egyptians that we've been looking at, so we've been talking through the increasing suffering of the Egyptians under the plagues that God has enacted. Have you noticed in your heart at all, does it begin to make you question the goodness of God? If it does, it may be a sign that we don't appreciate the spiritual danger and the ultimate disaster that comes from idolatry. When we see natural disasters, painful disease, widespread starvation and suffering, do we, do we begin to think that God, who clearly in these passages is very active behind all of the suffering that's going on, do we begin to think about God that he's unloving, unrighteous, that he's senseless, that he's feckless, that he's unrighteously selfish, incapable of compassion, that God is somehow unsympathetic to human need? Now, if that's where your mind goes when you begin to see human suffering, it starts to cause in your heart, your heart to devalue God, to be unaware of who he actually is and what he is like and what he has allowed from his creation toward himself. And we start elevating ourselves in our own thinking and we begin to define for ourselves what consists of right and wrong from our very limited and personal human perspective. Even in the application of the plagues, haven't you noticed the kindness of God? Did it ever dawn on you of how kind God has been in the application of the plagues? He calls for Pharaoh to release an oppressed and enslaved people that belong to God. And he does so merely with a warning. God's snake eats their snake. I think that's very kind of God. I mean, think about the next few plagues that come. All it did was make life temporarily uncomfortable. God has given so many non-fatal opportunities to turn from rebellion against him, to do what God asked to be done. I mean, the reality is the people didn't have to continue to follow this Pharaoh who was so prideful that he would sell out the entire country to maintain his godlike image. When the cattle die and the boils erupt and the hail falls and the suffering is beginning to be felt more painfully and personally, some, some of the people are even beginning to die. It's obvious it doesn't have to be that way. They could just let the people go and guess what would happen with all the plagues? They would, they would end. There would be no suffering anymore to the people of Egypt. But when you see this kind of suffering, and, and let's not minimize it, there is intense human suffering that's going on among the Egyptians. Do you ever find yourself, or even when you back out away from that and you look across our own world and you begin to see what's going on and you see human suffering and maybe you felt it yourself and you've seen it in family or friends, you find yourself wondering if God is more cruel than he should be and does that make you think that people are more innocent than they actually are? I wonder at times, if that's where our hearts go, I wonder, why don't you hate the plagues more? Why don't you hate idolatry more? When you see human suffering, why don't you hate sin more? Why do does our hearts begin to turn against God and not against the things that are pulling us away from a God who actually will relieve our pain and suffering through his greatness? Why do we turn on God when it's idolatry that's forcing justice from a God who actually has been patient and long-suffering toward our complete rebellion? Idolatry tends to alter correct thinking about God. 
Idolatry changes your mind. It swells inaccurate sympathies for people that enshrine God-belittling, human-exalting worship, worshiping self-exaltation, self-evaluation, self-determination against him. Every plague that we have seen, and we've been walking through them for a few weeks, every plague that we have seen has been showing something unique about the character of God. It's telling us who God is. And every plague provided an opportunity to turn away from sin and just simply acknowledge you're the one who brings blessing. You're the creator, you're the provider. God's supremacy is marvelously good. God's supremacy is not harsh or hard or evil, it's good. His being the very source of life is actually life-giving if you stop to consider it carefully. God being the creator of life actually breathes a higher kind of wisdom into our lungs as we think about how he's ordered the world that God is the one who provides for everything that we need not just to survive but actually to thrive. When you stop and think about that that should be thrilling for our hearts to contemplate. And idolatry rejects all that. Idolatry turns our minds against all those thoughts of God, reverses them. Idolatry brings justice. Idolatry produces what will actually decimate us. You remember Pharaoh's question that governs all the plagues back in chapter 5, verse 2. Who is Yahweh? Who is Yahweh and why should I obey him? What kind of God is Yahweh? What does he possess that I should have to respond to him? And God has powerfully answered through all of them. He is sovereign. We saw that through the introduction of the plagues. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He predicts what's going to happen. He is supreme. We saw that in the first miracle of the snakes. He is the source of life. That's the first three plagues or the first plague of the bloody Nile. He is the creator of life. That's the next three plagues of the frogs, the gnats, and the flies. He's the provider for life. We looked at that last week. He is... The provider for life, we saw it through the pestilence and the boils and the hail. And the eighth and ninth plagues we look at today, we'll see them in chapter 10. God is the sustainer of life. God sustains life. He sustains everything that is necessary for us to not just make it, but to actually thrive. Now, there's a lot of ways that God could highlight that. There are many, many different ways God could highlight that he himself is the one that sustains our life day in and day out. But these two plagues focus on two significant ways that God himself is the sustainer of life. We see it through the availability of food and we see it through the ability to work those two ways. If food is not available and no one has the ability to work in order to produce more, life can't be sustained for very long, especially after Hail has just destroyed most of your crops. Here, God shuts down the availability of food and he shuts down the ability to do any work that would help them recover from what they are going through and no one could control it. No one could stop it. It's purely beyond their ability. He just shuts down all of society and all of the ability that they have to sustain their own life. And he does it. For three painful days, at least, he allows that darkness to hang over them as if to painfully pierce their heart to say, you can do nothing to sustain your life without me. We'll see what happens through this sermon, huh? (laughs) The eighth and ninth plagues on Egypt highlight God as the ultimate sustainer of life. Let's look at these two areas. He sustains life, first of all, in this. God governs the availability of food. You didn't think of that. Your mind wasn't going there. We never really wonder or worry about the availability of food. We take it for granted all the time. We take it for granted. Now, let's look at this. Verse one is very, very pointed. There's no beating around the bush. There's no guessing as to what is going on here. Look at verse one. Then the Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I 
have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I may perform these signs of mine among them. This is a statement to Moses. Moses, I have hardened Pharaoh's heart. I have done this precisely what I said I was going to do back in chapter 4 verse 21 it was the Lord who said to Moses when you go back to Egypt see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go before all of this started he said I will do this and now here we are the eighth and ninth plague he says I have hardened his heart that's why it's going this way now we need to keep in mind how the Lord has done this Because there's been this back and forth, this little interplay between God hardened Pharaoh's heart, his heart was hardened, a little passive voice that's used there, and then he hardened his own heart, right? We've seen all of that. So what's going on? Did God do it? Was there some active force on him? Did he do it to himself? The answer is yes, it's all of that. God hardened his heart by doing much of what like we've seen in Romans chapter 1. He simply gives Pharaoh over to himself, to his own heart. He allows Pharaoh's own godless heart to drive him. That's the judgment of God, right? That's what Romans 1 says. In the wrath of God, he turns people over to themselves and it causes their heart to hardened towards God that is God's active work allowing our sinful hearts to dominate us that shows you how deeply we are indebted to the grace of God does it not every one of us but notice the hardening goes further than just Pharaoh's heart did you notice that in verse one It's not just Pharaoh's heart who God has hardened. I have also hardened the heart of his servants. So if at any point you were wondering about these innocent people surrounding Pharaoh, that they must have been a better kind of people with a better heart. Yes, I know some of them were warning Pharaoh, hey, this is getting bad. Maybe we should just let them go, but don't think for a moment that these people all of a sudden thought, you know, the Israelites don't deserve this slavery. No, all along the hearts of the Egyptians are growing harder. God is giving them over to their own sinful hearts as well and they are hardened. Never forget those taskmasters back in the beginning who were mercilessly persecuting the Israelite people from wicked and evil hearts against them. They just got harder. God's going to as he says here, perform these signs of mine. He doesn't call them here judgments. He calls them signs as if they signify something. They're pointing to something. They're pointing to what? They're signs of mine. They're signs that actually reveal God. They're trying to teach the Egyptians who the true God is. They're the signs that I have brought to teach them about myself. And notice verse 2. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and, your grand, and, and how I performed my signs among them that you may know that I am the Lord. It's the second reason. It's not just to teach Pharaoh. It's not just to teach the Egyptians who God is. Who else is supposed to be taught through this? The Israelites. Have you noticed we've been going through this whole account of the plagues and there's been no mention about what the Israelites are doing or what they're thinking And here, right when we're on the precipice of that final sign that's going to drive them out of the land, God looks at Moses and he says to him, this is not just to teach Egypt. This is to teach you. And not only that, these signs should bring about generational evangelism. Right? Because every successive generation is going to need to hear about what God has done and who God is and what he's like because every successive generation is going to have a similar heart 
to the Egyptians, believe it or not, among you Israelites that's going to want to move away and drift away from God. And you're going to have to teach them year after year, generation after generation. And these signs that I have pointed that teach Egypt who I am need to teach you too. And if every successive generation is told, that eventually gets down to people like us, doesn't it? So you have to begin to wonder, are we actually listening to this as if this should impact us as well? We know that Israel's going to need that. We know the history of Israel, don't we? We know this. They eventually do wander away from God. God's judgments that are very similar to the judgments on Egypt do get applied to Israel. They're cast out of the land. In the book of Deuteronomy, you remember Deuteronomy is written to that second generation of Israelites who had come out of Egypt. The first generation doubted the Lord and God began to kill them off in the wilderness for 40 years. So Deuteronomy is written to the generation about to cross over the Jordan and go into the promised land. You remember what is told to the Israelites? Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 20. Listen to this. When your son asks you in time to come saying, what do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord our God has commanded you? And that refers to the the old covenant law. What does all this mean? All these laws about what we eat and what we wear and where we go and what we can and what we can't do. What does all of this mean? What is the point of all of it? And your son's going to ask you, why do we have to do this? Then you shall say to your son, Deuteronomy 6.21, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. And the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Now listen to this. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh and all his household. And he brought us out from there to bring us in to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. Why do we do these things? There is a God who loves you and he's teaching you what is good. He's teaching you what will cause you to thrive and survive if you know who God is and you respond to him in reverent fear you find what's good. You don't, you don't teach your kids, we do this because just we just do it to do it. It's what Baptists do. It's just what we've always done. We're Baptists. That's bad teaching. That's bad parenting. No, we do this because God is showing us something about himself that is good and righteous. Idolatry is evil and it's deceptive and it's destructive, but there's good in the things of God. And you've got to teach every successive generation. This is why we teach our children the Bible from the very beginning. And you do it when you get up in the morning and you do it all day long. You do it when you go to bed at night. And that doesn't mean they have you know, literal formal schooling and they're sitting down with pen and paper all day long. No, it means as you go about all of the, the ways you live your life, you keep pointing out what God has done. You get up in the morning and you remind yourself and your children, it was God who made the sun. That's why we can get up and we can do anything this, today. You have a meal of any kind, you remind yourself, you remind your family God made this meal for us. He provided this for us. You turn your lights on in these beautiful homes that we live in, that we take for granted all the time and we take for granted light switches and when they don't turn on, we immediately get angry as if we're some kind of God who deserves lights to come on when we say, let there be light. You flip that light switch on, it's God who made this possible. God who has provided this kind of provision. You go to work and you remind your children, you remind yourself that God has given us the ability to work. That's a good thing. And to produce and to be 
to have provision for ourselves. You go to sleep at night and you remind them, God doesn't sleep, God doesn't slumber, we're weak, we're needy, but God watches us all night long. Everything about life teaches us something about him, right? That's, that's the idea here. We need that. So Moses then hears this and he's told this is gonna be something you're gonna teach generations to come. Next plague, look at verse three. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? He said to Pharaoh who viewed himself as deity. God versus God. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? You remember chapter 9 verse 17 says, still you exalt yourself against my people. You exalt yourself, you won't humble yourself in front of me. How long are you going to keep this up? And just notice, this is a great definition of humility, friends. You know how to generate humility? You know what real humility is? Humility is not just you self-deprecating jokes and comments about yourself. No, humility is when you really understand who God is and you see yourself in light of that picture, that is when you find humility. You see your limited self in front of the unlimited God and you will be humbled. You can't have true humility if you have an incorrect view of God. You will have right humility The fear of the Lord when you really understand who this God is and you clearly see who you are in relationship to him. Humility is a sober, obedient recognition of who we are in relationship to the greatness of God. And here's the call again from Moses. Let my people go. Let them go. And if you refuse, I'm going to bring locusts. And when we think locusts, we shouldn't think about those things that are buzzing in our trees right now and dying all over the ground. You've seen them. My dog tries to eat every one of them, it seems, as we're taking a walk. You disgusting dog. (laughs) Our dog just eats garbage all day. That's another sermon, another issue. You need to pray for us and our dog. These are grasshoppers. They're grasshoppers. We see those around here, and I, I was in the Texas Panhandle for years, and, and we had a lot of grasshoppers, and they got big. They got big, and we would see them all over the place, and they just eat everything, and we like to catch them and torture our sisters with them and things like that. But he says, I'm going to bring grasshoppers. I'm going to bring locusts. I'm going to bring a plague of locusts, and the Egyptians knew exactly what that was. They knew exactly what this was because they've seen plagues of locusts. This is not uncommon to their region and part of their world. In fact, it's still a part of their world. I was just researching plagues of locusts this week. It's a good thing to do, right? Spend your time studying plagues of locusts. In 1986, for three years, through 1989, there was a plague of locusts in Africa that impacted 30 different countries destroying crops, pastures. It led to a famine and a complete economic disaster of the area. Led up to, it led to the death of about two million people. That's in the modern era, isn't it? Another locust plague happened in 2019 through 2021. Think about that. During the COVID years, a plague of locusts hit parts of Africa and Asia that affected the entire food supply of almost 50 million people. Our own country went through a locust plague in the latter part of the 1800s, 1874 to 1875, happened throughout the Great Plains and it, into Canada. It covered two million square miles The swarms of grasshoppers was so thick, it was reported they could cover the sun up to six hours a day. 
It caused millions of dollars worth of crop damage in the 1800s, millions of dollars. The swarm was about 110 miles wide and 1,800 miles long and maybe a mile high. Can you imagine? We could go on. There's more and more and more of those that happen in history. All of that just to say this one was worse. This was worse. For Pharaoh to hear a locust plague is coming right after a hailstorm that destroyed all of the flax and all of the barley and the wheat harvest is just around the corner to hear that now a locust plague would have sent fear, terror into every heart of every Egyptian because you don't just recover from that. And look at the extent of this plague. Verse five. They shall cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. They will also eat the rest of what has escaped, what is left to you from the hail, and they will eat every tree which sprouts for you out of the field. Then your houses shall be filled and the houses of all your servants and the houses of all the Egyptians, something which neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day that they came upon the earth until this day. That's a bad plague. That's a bad plague. The barley and the flax were all destroyed. The wheat and the spelt were about to come up. So in the minds of most of the Egyptians, they were, this is a terrible thing that has happened with the hail, but, but there's hope on the horizon. We still have the wheat crop that hasn't been destroyed. Not now. This plague is going to wipe out every bit of the remaining food supply from the plants and the trees that exist in Egypt. And even more, these locusts are going to live inside your houses. It's not just going to eat your plants. They're going to be there all over your bed when you sleep at night. Think about it. No, really, think about it. It should creep you out. There's nowhere where you're going to go when you can't think, where you can't think we're under the judgment of God. And notice the end of verse six. Moses delivers this and it says, he turned and went out from Pharaoh. The Hebrew gives the connotation here that he simply gave it and he turned on his heels almost in disgust, in finality, and he walked out. There was no no time for response, just walked out. Pharaoh's counselors are concerned. You see it in verse seven. Pharaoh's servants said to him, how long will this man be a snare to us? That's fascinating. What did God ask Pharaoh? How long will you fail to humble yourself before me? And what's their question? How long will this man be a snare? The word snare has the picture of someone who's grasped an opponent and put them in some kind of bear hug, a lock that they cannot get out of, and they can't move. This man, Moses, is just constraining everything about us. We can't get away from him. They don't even realize this is, this is us and God. They keep looking at Moses as if he's the one. How long is this guy going to be a snare to us? And the counselors give counsel to Pharaoh, let, let the men go. Let the men go. Just let all their men go. All of their leaders, let them go out that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not realize that Egypt is destroyed? Not that Egypt will be destroyed. Egypt is done. So you, you got to do something. So give him a little bit. Bargain with Moses. This is interesting. This is the Egyptians giving up on their gods. You remember, Egypt was filled with deities. They were filled with all kinds of deities that existed to protect them, protect them from other countries, other gods. Egypt was was the primary country to worship the gods and be protected by them. For them to say this, Egypt is destroyed, is to say our gods are worthless. You remember... God says you're going to teach these future generations of Israelites how I made a mockery of Egypt. 
I took all of their gods and I lifted them up right in front of their face and I wiped them off and said there's nothing to these gods. I've quoted from him several times because I think he does such a great job of summarizing how the deities of Egypt were being singled out with every plague but Phil Riken in his commentary says again of this one. He says the Egyptians worshipped men, the patron of the crops. Men worshippers held an annual harvest festival which may well have coincided with this eighth plague. Can you imagine? It's harvest time. The Egyptians also worshipped Isis, the goddess of life who prepared flax for clothing. Nepri, the god of grain. Anubis, the guardian of the fields. And Senehem, the divine protector against pests. They had a lot of gods for a lot of things. They depended on all these gods to preserve their food supply. There is an inscription on the Tanis Stele, which dates from the region of the Tarka, speaking of a fine field which the gods protected against grasshoppers. Riken says, but not this time. This time the gods failed. I think Pharaoh understood that Egypt and all it represented was about to come crumbling down because he does start bargaining with Moses. Look at verse 8. So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh and he said to them, go, serve Yahweh your God. He actually acknowledges Yahweh here. Go serve Yahweh. But he's not, he's not the God, he's your God. He's not giving up completely. This is your God. Go serve Yahweh your God. Who are the ones that are going? And Moses said, we shall go out with our young and our old and our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds, we shall go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. That's fascinating. Pharaoh said, your, your men can go. He said it in verse 11, not so. Go now the men among you, just the men, and serve the Lord. That's what you want. Now, why would he say that? Well, Pharaoh didn't think that women could lead in worship. Women couldn't participate in worship. Children couldn't participate in worship. He had a very low view of the family. It's just the men you want anyway. They're the ones who can comprise the priesthood. Just let them go. And Moses says, no, 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 no. God doesn't want just the men. God wants the whole community. The whole nation belongs to him, not just not just the men. Yes, they provide leadership. They're the priesthood, etc. But he wants the whole group. Remember, when when God created people, he made them male and female in his own image and said, be fruitful and multiply. Israel was to multiply those who would bear the image of God and radiate his glory across the earth. He wasn't just interested in the men. He needed everybody. In verse 10, thus may the Lord be with you if Ever I let you and your little ones go. Take heed, for evil is in your mind. You can go with the men, but not anything else. Isn't that interesting? God says, you let us all go. He says, no, that statement is evil. What he just said there was what God commanded is evil. You have evil motives, evil intentions. Who defines evil, by the way? Pharaoh? Don't we have that problem today? Aren't we, aren't we engaged in that kind of battle when there's one part of society that says to another part of the society, we say, here's what's righteous, here's what's good, and the other part of society that has no connection to our God says, no, that's evil, that's wrong. We're seeing it in increasing ways, aren't we? The world system calls it evil not to... To, to not allow a woman to have the right to determine whether she wants to keep her unborn born child. They call it health care. Why do they call it health care? Because if you oppose that, that would be evil. You don't care about the well-being of women? It's called evil when murderous criminals who would murder even more have their lives taken from them in justice. They say that, that would be inhumane. It's called evil to define marriage between one man and one woman for life. That's a denial of love. That's evil. That's what the world system says. 
It's called evil if we do not give children the right to determine their own gender and assist them with mutilating surgeries, life-altering drugs. That's called suppressive. It's called contrary to nature. It's evil, right? It's what we're hearing. So we know this from the very beginning. There's an ethic in the scripture. There's a very definite ethic from the God who created. If you believe that God's the creator, then he sets the, the rules. If you dismiss him as the creator, you start redefining the ethics, right? You start redefining what is evil. And you, you understand this. Everyone who rejects the God of scripture is going to come up with, up with an ethic that's contrary to what God has defined. That's the, that's the way it will go. So that whatever God says will be defined as evil, just like Pharaoh does here. You have evil in your mind. These are bad motives. This is a great affront to God. And God responds, look at verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come up on the land of Egypt and eat every plant of the land, even all that the hail has left, Verse 13, so Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt and the Lord directed an east wind on the land all that day and all that night and when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled in all the territory of Egypt. They were very numerous. There had never been so many locusts, nor would there be so many again. Keep that in mind in light of the locust plagues they've seen. Verse 15, for they covered the surface of the whole land so that the land was darkened and they ate every plant of the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Thus, nothing green was left on tree or plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. You say, well, Egypt, isn't it a pretty brown place anyway? Not near the Nile. Around the Nile, it's incredibly productive and incredibly green. Now it's all brown. It's all darkened because the locusts are present. And, and again, this, this is not some natural event. This is a supernatural event. However, think about what had to go into this event. For all of these locusts and that many to come, what did the breeding process have to look like for a long period of time previous to this? This tells you God had been preparing for this. And then he sends an overnight locust plague through a wind. That's not normally how plagues work. But that's how this one worked. It was almost instantaneous, like all the other plagues were. Supernatural. And within days, everything green is gone. Look at Pharaoh's response in verse 16. He sees it. And Pharaoh hurriedly called for Moses. Again, these people know what locust plagues do. He knows the plight of Egypt at this moment. So Pharaoh hurriedly calls for Moses and Aaron. And he said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. This is all of us saying, finally, finally, Pharaoh's become a Christian. Pharaoh has prayed the sinner's prayer. Pharaoh has walked the aisle. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. Isn't that what you want to hear? That's what we hear from people when they suffer at times. Is it repentance? Is he now humbled before the Lord where he hadn't been? No, no, we've been down this road before, back in chapter 9, verse 27. He said the same thing, I have sinned. He called it sin as if it was some transgression against God himself. But it was feigned. It was forged repentance. Interestingly, he, he says here, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, verse 17, please forgive my sin only this once. <laughs> he doesn't get it. Most sinful people, we don't get it. You understand, repentance is not saying I've done a bad thing and I need to stop doing the bad thing. That's not what repentance is. That's not what conversion is. Repentance is where you say, I am a bad person. 
that what I think and what I do is contrary to God and everything about me deserves the judgment and justice of God. It's not that I've done bad things, I am a bad person. I'm contrary to God. He doesn't say that here. He doesn't see that here. This is not real repentance. This is, I don't like the circumstances. I don't like the suffering. Can I just get a little of mercy from God, alleviation of this suffering? I'll call it sin if you want me to call it sin. You ever been there? Is that where you are? Please forgive my sin. Go make supplication to the Lord your God that he would only remove this death from me. What does Moses do? He could have looked at Pharaoh and said, I know you, you scoundrel. I've got my thumb on you now. That's not real repentance. Could have got nose to nose with him. You don't know what real repentance is. That's how sometimes we respond. That's not helpful, is it? Moses went out and prayed. He went out and prayed and he asked God to have mercy and to relieve Egypt of the curse of this plague. And verse 19, the Lord responds, the Lord shifted the wind to a very strong west wind which took up the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Again, that's not how plagues come and go, by the way. This is supernatural activity from God. This is so that all of Egypt would see this is the hand of God. What has God done? I took all your food supply away. You you have nothing to eat. And now I can make them all go away with the same wind. I'll just reverse course and shift the wind and they'll all go away. Why? So you will see you cannot sustain yourself. I am the Lord who provides everything necessary for you to live. Everything. What? What a lesson. What a lesson for fat, rich people like us. Some of you are like, I'm skinny. No, we're wealthy. We don't think about these things. We even make plans. We make grocery lists, right? We don't even go to the grocery store anymore. Matter of fact, we get upset when they send us an email and say, we changed your delivery order. You wanted this brand, you have to get this one. We were out today. What? Do they not know who I am? Is my money not good enough for them? What do you mean you don't have organic? I mean, we get upset over this stuff. What did Jesus teach us to pray every day? Remember Matthew 6, 11? Give us this day, what? What does that mean? What does that mean? It means every day we live as if we're absolutely dependent on God for the next meal. We don't take for granted tomorrow. We don't live as if we never think about God sustaining us and God providing for our needs. We, we pray every day, God, give us what we need for today just what we need, just daily bread, not daily filet, daily bread. Just sustain us physically because we know you're the one who does it. Your job, the money it provides you, the grocery store, your garden, your trees, the orchards, our ability to pick and buy and have any of what we do have that sustains us it's all by the hand of God isn't it it's all his if if we have a meal today he blessed us with a meal today he gave it to us praying this way reminds us God is the only one who sustains our life yes yes I get it he works through through farmers and grocers He gives us land, he gives us knowledge. He is the one who gives us the sun and the rain, causes the ground to produce. He's the one who provides people to harvest it and prepare food. He's the one who's behind everything we have that gives us any and every meal we consume that sustains our lives. He does it all. He uses means, but he's behind it all. 
And that's why 1 Timothy 4, you read verses 3 or verses 4 and 5 in 1 Timothy 4, it basically says everything, God's given us all this stuff for our good, for us to enjoy, to enjoy it. And that's why we sanctify it or we set it aside through prayer. Have you ever thought about this? The the purpose of praying before a meal is not that if you eat the unprayed for food, you're somehow going to be spiritually contaminated. That's not the idea. It's you praying before a meal. You're saying this comes from God. This is holy. This came from him. It belongs to him. We're satisfied by this because of him. It's simple acknowledgement of God. That's why we pray. We're encouraged to pray. We don't take it for granted. James 4.13. Don't, don't act like you're going to set your, okay, we're going to go do this and it's going to produce this kind of profit for us. I'm going to go do this job. I'm going to do this. I've got X, Y, Z. I've got it all mapped out. I've got it planned out. I've got spreadsheets even. Who are you? You should say, if the Lord wills. What, what does that do? It sanctifies the work. It actually sanctifies the work. It says it's a part of God. God will let us do this or that. And, and if he chooses, we will have a profit from it. Right. Who sustains our life? It's only God. We, we, we need to remember that. And the world needs to see that. The world needs to see us dependent on that. And when things start crashing down around us and, and the economy starts to rupture, well, believers say, you know what? It is going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. We're going to have to make adjustments. It might be uncomfortable. But at the end of the day, God provides. We're his people. And we're going to display trust in God and not in our ingenuity and not our being better than someone else. No, just we're going to trust God to provide because God governs even the availability of the food we eat. Let's look at the ninth plague that highlights God as the sustainer of life. Here we see that God governs the ability to work. God governs the ability to work. Verse 20 reminds us that after the locusts left, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. So it begins that way, I hardened Pharaoh's heart, and it ends that way, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go. And just like previous plagues, the gnats and the boils, this next plague, the darkness, there's no announcement here. There's no going before Pharaoh saying, let my people go. It's just Moses, go out and do this, and it's going to happen. No discussion. Verse 21, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. It's hard to know what that actually means. You can't feel darkness. You can feel the effects of darkness, but you can't feel darkness itself. It can be so dark it has an effect on you, but more than likely that phrase may be felt it's often translated as someone who is groping around for something they cannot find more likely the phrase would be there's going to be a darkness not just that may be felt but here is a darkness that causes people to feel around it causes people to feel around because they they can't see anything What a fascinating plague this is. Some have referred to this plague as being like the kind of darkness that exists at the extreme poles of our earth called polar nights. You ever heard of that? At the extreme poles of our our earth, the north and the south poles, there are periods of time in which the sun is never seen for months. Can you imagine that? During what's called an astronomical polar night, it happens only in two places on the earth, the extremities of our world, the extreme north, the extreme south caps of the planet last for months, May to August for the south, November through January for the north. You can't see anything. Some say in the daytime, you might get glimpses of stars, maybe, but they seem very distant. 
There are people who have, there's accounts of sailors who have sailed to, sound, to Antarctica and they've been caught in those polar nights and they're, it's just day after day and week after week for a couple of months and they actually go mad because there's no, there's no light whatsoever. I mean, we, we talk about seasonal affective disorder. Who can you imagine this? No sun, no light for three days straight. That's a fascinating plague. But even more fascinating, this isn't at the North Pole. This isn't at the South Pole. This is in the land of the sun. This is Egypt, a country known for its exposure to even... Egypt was known for its devotion to the sun. You do understand the greatest God among all of Egypt was the God devoted to the sun. Again, let me quote Phil Riken. He does it better, so I just, rather than plagiarize him, I'll just tell you. I'm, I'm quoting him. He says, The Egyptians served Horus, the god of the sunrise, Aten, the god of the midday sun, and Atum, the god of the sunset. But the supreme deity in their national pantheon was Amon-Re, who said, I am the great God who came into being of himself, he who has no opponent among the gods. The Egyptians believed that this solar deity was their creator. Unique God, they would sing in their great hymn to the sun disc, there is none besides him. You mold the earth to your wish, you and you alone, all people, herds and flocks, all on earth that walk on legs, all on high that fly with their wings. That was the hymn they sang in worship to Amun-Re. Every morning the rising of the sun in the east reaffirmed the life-giving power of Amun-Re. Sunset represented death in the underworld, but the rise of Amun-Re offered the hope of resurrection. For the Egyptians, it was a matter of faith that the eternally rising sun could never be destroyed. And Pharaoh was regarded as the son of Amun-Re, the personal embodiment of the solar deity. Egypt's king was Egypt's god, and as the incarnation of Amun-Re, he was the one who maintained the cosmic order. To turn the lights out on Egypt was a direct attack on Pharaoh, wasn't it? The ninth plague, we're almost to the end. We know where this goes in, in the 10th plague, but never forget this was a direct attack on Egypt's greatest god. It's as if Pharaoh was an antichrist. An antichrist. The opposite of the incarnate son of the true God. And just like that, without warning, God shuts the lights out. Look at verse 22. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light, notice this, in their dwellings. The lights outside were off for everybody. Israel had light in their house. This means Egyptians couldn't keep a candle lit. Isn't that interesting? They couldn't even keep a candle lit. And if they had a candle, it could only put off enough light just to give them light in front of their face. They couldn't work, they couldn't do anything, but they couldn't even keep a candle lit in their house. Can you imagine what that would do? This is the divine shutdown order, right? This is a shelter in place from God. Not only that, he shuts down your conversations. You, you get into pitch black darkness, you probably don't have just back and forth conversations with one another. It cuts off all conversation and socialization. It's hard to have a meal. You can't cook a meal. You're, you're groping around to just find whatever you can. You're not going out to work. So the locusts have just destroyed everything. 
you, you can't get out and start to come back from that and work the ground and plant more seed. You, you can't do any of it for three days. The Israelites have light in their house. I wonder what they were doing. I wonder what they were talking about. I wonder what their fellowship was like. No work to be done. Except in Israel, they had, they had the light. Three days, nonstop. Can't bring your laptop home, do work from home. There's no electricity, right? There's nothing you can do. You sit in your dark home, hour upon hour, day after day. Probably you lose track of the days, lose track of the time. You don't know when it's day, you don't know when it's night. You don't know, you don't know. Think about the fear, the discouragement, the isolation. Could you imagine that in the KC metro area? And that's what it was. It's like a darkness that just goes around Egypt. If God descended with darkness around the population of Kansas City and just shut us down, nobody goes to work, no essential services are out there. Nobody can do anything just for three days. What would that do to a society. And then it lifted. And then it was, it was gone. And Pharaoh was done. Verse 24, Pharaoh called to Moses and said, go serve the Lord. Go serve Yahweh. Only let your flocks and your herds be detained. Why would he do that he says you can even take your little ones just keep keep your wealth here why would he want that we don't have any the pestilence it's destroyed their herds they have no food they're not going to recover so you can go leave your herds here but pharaoh doesn't understand they're going out in the wilderness to worship yahweh to serve yahweh and Moses says that in verse 25, you must also let us have sacrifices and burn offerings that we may sacrifice them to the Lord our God. Therefore, our livestock too shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind for we shall take some of them to serve the Lord our God and until we arrive there, we ourselves do not know with what we shall serve the Lord. I mean, he hadn't given them the law yet, had he? They didn't know exactly what all this would consist of but here's how God views worship. It embraces everything about you. All of the people in your home and everything you own belongs to the Lord and you give some of it as a recognition that he owns all of it. And that's what they're saying. We have to have all that we possess because it actually belongs to Yahweh. We belong to him and we have to worship him with this. So everything we have belongs to him. You, you can't cause us to keep some of this back. So Pharaoh sees the full picture now. You see it in verse 27. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he was not willing to let them go. And notice this last statement. Look at verse 28. Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Beware. Do not see my face again for in the day you see my face you shall die. Get out of my face. That's literally what he's saying. Get out of my face. Get as far away from me as you can get. Get, get away. And if you ever come near me again, I will kill you. The hardened heart of Pharaoh is now a murderous heart, which is exactly the progression of a hard heart of where it goes. A hardened heart will get so hard that it will wish the death of those who represent what it's hardened to. And Moses partly agrees. Verse 29, he says, you're right. You're right. I will never see your face again. Meaning, I'll never be in your presence like this. He will see Pharaoh coming. He'll watch Pharaoh go down, but they will not be in the same room again. They will not be face to face again. But it won't be Moses on the bad side of that deal. This is the final plague that Moses will deliver in Pharaoh's direct presence. It's almost over. 
And what a powerful statement from Yahweh. Darkness. Your ability to function, to do any work, to have any productivity whatsoever, to do anything to sustain your life can be shut off just like that by God. Turned on just like that by God. Do you think through that? Do you think through that? We get up, we go about our days and our weeks and our jobs and our responsibilities, sometimes with very little regard to what God has done around us to let us do that day in and day out. We take the sun for granted. If anybody woke up this morning and said, rain? (laughs) No, this is a gift from God, isn't it? It's a gift from him. Is it going to be hot this week? It's going to be so humid. This rain is going to make it so humid. When the sun comes out, that's going to do devastating things to my my golf game today. (laughs) The lights work, the sun shines, the moon rises, the car starts, the fields produce, the rains come, the normal laws of nature come and go day in and day out. Did you realize that all those normal things is the constant sustaining hand of God. Do you remember what Colossians chapter one, verses 16 and 17 says about Jesus? Listen to this. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. By him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, And for him, he is before all things, meaning he is in front of it all. He leads it all. And then there's this next phrase, and in him, all things hold together. Isn't that a powerful thought? That Jesus Christ, every day, every moment of every day is causing everything we take for granted to stay together if for one moment he lifted his sustaining hand the whole the whole universe would go crazy and come undone which it will one day every law of nature is the law of Christ is it not he rules it the only reason the sun came up today is because Jesus said, son, you're going to come up again. He said, but the weatherman said, not only would it come up, it said what time it would come up because the weatherman serves God. Really, do we think that way? It happens this way because he's in that kind of control. We need to consciously remind ourselves of this. I, I know that we all got frustrated with the lockdowns and the government during COVID and there's so much swirling about what governments were thinking and doing through all of that but how many times were you asking yourself through that time what what is God telling us through this what is God saying about himself through all of the inconvenience and not just inconvenience that That had devastating effect on some people. What is God telling us? Or did we back off and we said, I I don't know if I can actually serve a God who lets things like this happen. Did we turn on our idolatries and become supple under the hand of God? Or did we get hardened It's a good question to ask. Not just rage over what you think people were doing and governments were doing and saying, stop stop that kind of thing. You don't know and you can't figure it out. And what if it was as bad as all the conspiracies say it is? What are you going to do? You're going to stop and you're going to say, what does God want me to do? What should I do by his word how should I see him what is he teaching us about this that we could respond to him he controls it all whether we get sick whether we don't whether we work whether we don't whether we live or we don't we need to be careful about confidently saying that 
any event and this event and that event is the direct judgment of God. I, I don't know that God was bringing judgment through a tornado or an earthquake. or the, I, don't, I don't know the mind of God. But what I should back away is, is what should I be learning about him with all of these events? What is he teaching us? What are you taking for granted that if removed, it would so rock your world that you would fall into complete hysterics, deep depression, complete failure if it were taken from you? I wonder if that's where your idols are. And if it happened, what would it suggest about what you think about your dependence on God to sustain? God forbid, I don't want that for anybody. But what would you think of him? Would you be enraged? Would you be dependent? Did you know that God loves you too much to let your idols destroy you if you belong to him? He cares too much about your soul to let you stay an idolater. That's why he gave you a savior, isn't it? And sometimes that's why he has to pry our fingers and think about this. How hard does God have to work to pry our fingers off the things we are so devoted to other than him so that we are liberated from them to love him? It's a good question to ask ourselves regularly. You wonder, are we listening to the plagues and learning and loving the God revealed from them? Let's pray together.